This Ask an Expert conversation is brought to you by Henley Business Radio. Welcome to Henley Business Radio. My name is Gareth Armstrong, and once again, it's an absolute pleasure to be with you today. And once again, we're bringing you a fascinating conversation with a fascinating individual. In fact, just listen to this for a moment, and I'll drop a couple of brands here into the mix so you're going to understand the caliber of person we're speaking with today. He's the former CEO of Warner Gallo Music Group. Ivor, that's a big name, a massive name across the world. How do you feel being called the former CEO of Warner Gallo Music Group? I can tell you it didn't start like that. Okay, yes. (laughs) It started at the bottom and slowly worked myself up the ranks to become the CEO of Gallo and the CEO of the Warner Music Group. And as you know, the Gallo Group was very good with international labels, of course, and Warner was a worldwide operation. Mm. So it was good for us to have a strong local division and a strong international division as well. You're also the ex-chairman of the record industry of South Africa. Yes, I took that position where we used to have meetings to discuss piracy, awards, systems, unit sales and things like that. And I did that, and I was also at one time chairman of the anti-piracy unit. So wow. we, because at the time there were huge amounts of CDs being on sale mm. at the various robots and things like that, sure. and it became a huge problem for the industry and the film industry because they were selling our latest products uh, at the various robots. Well, now you can get these things free free, in inverted commas, off the internet, that must be an absolute nightmare for whoever is now chairing those two committees or portfolios or organizations. And one of my lectures I will be giving is the discussions of streaming and where it's going and the costing and the Mm. royalty situations Mm. and things like that. So I will be on my lecture on Thursday is uh, in discussions and where the money's coming to you from, from that. Okay, well, it's great to have you here. Would you mind please introducing yourself? And I just want to remind those who are listening, this is our Ask an Expert feature on Henley Business Radio. So we pull a guest into the studio who we believe is an expert, and then we go to them and we ask them questions, questions that you're asking, questions that we have. And so that's what I was here to do today, to answer some of our questions. Before we go there... Please, Ivor, just introduce yourself. I know off-air you were talking about how you lost a whole bunch of money being an entrepreneur, and you've just mentioned now that you had to work your way up all the way into the office of the CEO. Please, give us a snapshot of who you are. My father always said to me while I was at school, what do you want to do? Do you want to be a second-hand car salesman? Mm -hmm. Do you want to be a plumber? Do you want to be an electrician? What are you going to do when you finish school? And I thought and thought, and I didn't know what I was going to do. But one of my loves was music. Mm. And sometimes your hobby becomes your business. And I think that's what happened to me. I came to Johannesburg. I was educated in Bloemfontein, came up here, and I managed to get a job at Gallo. Mm. And Gallo was one of the major record companies. But when you started off at Gallo's, where, where did they put you? Into the warehouse, packing records. Mm. And uh, I, I gained a huge amount of experience by being in the warehouse and being in the factories and understanding what was going on. Oh, so it's a magical start, in fact. You just understand what's going on in the warehouse and mm. things like that and packing and numbers and, you know, catalog numbers and things like that. After my six months in the warehouse, they put me into the promotions department. And the promotions department was going to radio. There was no television in those days and going to the press and trying to get as much airtime as you could to promote the artists. Mm. In those days, we also had the David Gresham show at quarter past five. We had the uh, radio record club. We had Beacon Nights up the scene. We had uh, various radio shows. And you used to have to go to these guys and get your product played. Otherwise, nobody heard about it. Mm. And then I started that. Then I became an A&R assistant. And I worked under a guy called Peter Lotus. 
And Peter Lotus was head of product at the company. So everything that came through, he said, guys, listen to this. Are we putting this out? What are we going to do with this? So and you're part uh, of that we review put it process. Out. And we had to go through. And eventually Peter Lotus came to me one day and he put a pile of records on my disc and he said, this is from 20th Century Fox. Mm. He says, they've got one record that I've released and I don't know what to do with the balance. Go and listen to all this stuff. Mm. And the record that we had out was Zorba the Greek on 20th Century oh, Fox. Wow. And he put this all on my table and he said, you in charge of 20th Century Fox. And I went through the product and I found a guy called Barry White. Okay. And Barry White was very big both to the white population and to the black population. Mm. And I had to start getting this going. So I started going at night to clubs and say, please put on the Barry White, please put on the so Barry White. physically going physically to the club? to going to those clubs Amazing. and starting to, to push the record that way. And the next thing is a couple of people wanted Barry White. We imported 25 copies. The 25 next week was 50 copies, then 100 copies, and all of a sudden Barry White was starting to grow in mm. the club business. And eventually I went to Peter Lotus and I said, listen, we've got to put this into local production. And we put that local, into local production, and we did exceptionally well with Barry White. Mm. The next thing, he had an orchestra that was there, the Barry White Orchestra, and I put that, that out as well. And we sold probably 200,000 of these records in those days which is a, which a phenomenal was a big, number big big amount of, then, of, of, of records in those days mm. and that got me into the music business when people actually said who found barry white and i said oh it's ivor Hobbit, ivor mm. Mm. and a couple of years later i was called to vegas and they presented me with an award there for breaking barry white the first country outside america to break barry white wow. and we started that way and that was my break into the music business but no simple However, no, no simple break here though and that's uh, lots yeah, and lots yeah. of sweat a lot of time well, you had to go through it, but for Peter Lotus to put that on my desk and say, listen, have, have a listen to this and see what's good, uh, and I found Barry White, mm. and uh, it was enormous. Mm. And, you know, it, was, it wasn't the first record, it was the second record, the third record, the fourth, they all did exceptionally well. Mm. However, my love was also for local music. You know, I used to go down to the studios and listen to some of the black music, and all of a sudden I found myself dealing with a guy called Wes Nicorsi, mm. who was one of the producers there. And I really got on well with Wes Nicorsi. I started going to his house. He used to come, bring radio announcers to me, and I started getting into black music. And there were some phenomenal people that are all forgotten about in the music industry today mm. who were very, very big in the black market. Mm. And I can mention some of those mention people. Mention them, absolutely. But there was Hamilton Zamandi, who started with the Soul Brothers. There was Stanley Nicorsi, who was terrific. There was Moses Lamini, another one. They all worked for the Gramophone Record Company. There was David Tukwani, who worked for Teal Record Company, and he had a band called The Movers, which was huge. And then I started going to live shows. Mm. I started going. I was the only white in the audience in those times, and there was a guy called Zach Nikorsi. And Zach Nikorsi used to play the saxophone. Mm. And I used to love his performance, not just his playing, but he, the way he danced and had a, a, a dance routine, and the crowd used to go mad. So I started with that. And then with West Nicorsi, we started going and learning things and taking me to places. And West was also a great saxophone player and a penny whistle player. And I started going around with him and going to shows and things like that. And I kept on liking the music as such. At this point in your career, your mid-level management? I was what, what, uh, just uh, product and promotions. I was just everywhere. But you're developing all of these relationships. Developing and understanding. And one of the big things you've got to understand is communication. Mm. It's communication with your people overseas, and it's your communication here. Different and types of communication. Different certainly. types of communication. But your overseas people, they like 
like phone calls, like emails, and want to know what's happening in the territories. And I used to promote myself by communication with these companies. Mm. And, you know, when you went to see them overseas, they had your documentation here and they had your documentation here. And there was a lot of explaining to do. You know, Mm. there were contracts to be signed all the time and things to do. But um, I enjoyed what I was doing. Then there was a guy called Isaac Lavuma. And what happened is the music industry always used to start in Pretoria. I don't know what it was, but a record used to break in Pretoria before Johannesburg. So Isaac Levuma had, we had what we call speakers on the roof and played, and we used to go to a place called Marabastat. We used to leave at 5 o'clock in the morning. Okay. All the trains used to come in to Marabastat, and we had these huge speakers and disco playing the latest records on there, and we used to give out cards with the number of the record, you see. And we used to just plug this the whole time. And eventually, people used to go into the stores with the number of the card and said, I want SOJ this, I want BL this, and we started creating I'm sure they call that um, nowadays hijack marketing or something similar. So, so you're the origin of it. 100%. Yeah. <laughs> so so we, we, we started that way in promoting records. I used to go. Wow. And f- Isaac used to fetch me in his combi. We shoot off to Pretoria at 5 o'clock, and that music used to be blasting through Marabastad, mm. which is still a big area today. But there were so many record stores there from Standard Cycle, Popular Cycle, A&J Cycle. They were all in Pretoria. And the next thing, if a record started in Pretoria, you knew you had you a big knew. sale throughout Johannesburg through the whole country. Okay. It was just amazing that Joburg didn't take off, but Pretoria did. Mm. Mm. So we always used to concentrate. When I first finished in Pretoria, I used to come back to Joburg. And in those days, there wasn't the security that we used to have now if you go to the SABC. Sure. But I used to go into the SABC with my little suitcase with all my local records. And I say, please play this, please play that. Just be knock, knocking on studio I windows. knock on the door and go in or leave it on their desks. And I said, please play this. And people couldn't understand how I got so much airplay. Mm. But I used to go in the morning and if I had to sit with Clacky McKay or Vincent Hesse in those days and just drop off a record and say, this is this, this is this. And I used to get airplay. Now, the lost art of face-to-face communication, isn't it? I mean, yeah, that, today everybody just sends it by email texts, or they yeah. sends their disc and things like that. Yeah. But in those days... Boy, we used to get out into the trade. We used to go to the clubs at night. We used to think, I used to work very hard, but I enjoyed it. I mm. loved what I was doing. I loved going to the clubs. I loved going to see the reaction of people. I used to love going to concerts. I hear that you loved music. That was how you got into Gallo, mm. certainly, or your interest there. But then you're saying you love people. You love that interaction. Is that what was able to then assist you to turn into a CEO type? What happened after this? So what's the rest where, of the journey? Where I was good at was my communication with people okay. and looking after people. Mm. If there were issues or whatever, I tried to sort those out as soon as possible. Mm. And even my international clients, you dealt a lot with lawyers internationally. You know, you had the record company, but they had business affairs and lawyers. So you found yourself dealing with the lawyers a lot. Mm. And even here, when I was in South Africa working with artists, I always said, look, take those contracts, go to a lawyer. And on my contracts, I said, please see a lawyer before you sign these agreements. Mm. So... I just wanted to be fair to everybody because the record industry didn't have a good name. Complaining about their royalties, we're not happy about this. And for me, I wanted to clear that out and try and see that that everybody was on a a fair situation. Sure, sure. So what happens after that? You've developed okay. this incredible network. So, You're doing some ma- amazing work. Then how, does the, how no, do you get t- noticed It took a bit like of that? time because 40 years takes a long time. Absolutely. But mm. I always wanted to go to Cannes. When I started off, I used to go to the boss and say, you know, I want to go to the Midham in, in Cannes. 
can I go? He said, oh, we haven't got budget. You can't go. Mm. And, you know, like the Canfus festivals on the, at the moment, yeah. you always wanted to go there, see what was new. You went to go to Midham to see what was there. 12,000 people in the record industry. It's a must. So I used go to, to go and say, can't I go? Can't I go? I'd really like to go along to Midham. And this is where risk, you know, I talk about risk. Mm. And sometimes things work and sometimes don't. Mm. So I went to my boss at the time, and he's, it was Peter Gallo, and I said, Peter, I really want to go. He says, no, we haven't got budget. So I said to him, what happens if I pay? If I pay and can I come along? He said, yeah, you can register under the Gallo name. You can come. So the next thing, I started going to magazines. And I said, look, I'm going to Cannes. All the artists from around the world are going to be there. There's performances of this, this, this. That's Cillian Dion, that's Lionel Richie, you know, the, the, yeah, the, Gallo, big, the big names. And I went to see them, and I said, look, I'm going to Cannes. Are you interested in photos? Are you interested in pictures, in stories? And they said, I'll pay you 10 rand for every black and white that mm -hmm. you use in our magazines, 75 rand for a color, and 75 rand for a feature story that we use. So they had a lot of magazines. It was Republican Press in those days, mm -hmm. and they had quite a few. So off I, go, I, I book a hotel, the cheapest available hotel that I could find next to the railway station, and I organise a uh, air ticket for myself. Once again, the cheapest, driving at Nice, taking the bus, mm -hmm. and uh, off I go. And I go into my hotel. It's right next to the railway line. The trains are going chick, chick, chick the whole night and backwards and forwards. And I go into to my room. I don't even have a television. All I've got is a towel that you can see right through. Oh, it's wow. been used so often. Wow. But it was, the, cheap, it was the, the cheapest hotel there. And eventually I started... After each event, they had photographs of the night before. Mm. So if this artist was performing, they had various photos, and this artist was performing. And I used to go and buy the photographs of the artist. If it was Celine Dion or Lionel Richie or the Commodores or whoever it was, I used to go and purchase these things for 80 francs at the time mm. or whatever. It was un unbelievably. Mm. But where I struck it lucky was at the same time, there was the Miss. Europe nude competition. Oh, wow. Okay. And they also had it in Cannes. So I go past and I see all these beautiful pictures. Top 50 Miss Nude, the top 25 Miss Nude, the top 15, the top 10, the top one. So I go and buy all these photos. Okay. And I put them in my, because you know you weren't allowed to bring like that type of stuff into South Africa. Sure. I put it in my exec pad and I came back and I sold them to group called Scope Magazine. They took every photo, wow. and it paid for my air tickets, it paid for my stories, but I got into Cannes. And from that time, I went 34 to 36 times in a row to mm. Cannes every year. Wow. The company sent me on a regular basis, and uh, that's how I, I got to Cannes. And eventually you were honoured by the... Yeah, the in 2008, the they had a dinner for me at the very fancy Majestic Hotel mm. in my contribution to music and also to South African music as mm. such. So, so that was good fun. You've got a fascinating journey. You did mention something off air that you haven't touched on here. Now, just, just let's, let's spend two minutes there and then let's start asking some questions. You, you mentioned you'd been an entrepreneur. You'd, it didn't work out for you. The reason We're I'm asking that question is because the, there are so many people that look at entrepreneurship and they think it's the sexy thing, but actually it can be quite difficult. And, and yeah. you saying it didn't work out for you, that's fascinating. The first experience I had was I was very close, as I said, to, to two guys one was a guy called Sidwell Duda, and one was a guy called Rayam Kesey. Mm. And they came to me and they said, Ivor, with all our bands that we've got, there's a place in, in Venda called Tawanda, 
and uh, they've just built a new stadium there. And he said, they've never seen all the acts. We've got to go up to Tuando and have a show there, and uh, we'll make a fortune of money. So this, this, and we had discussions and meetings and things like that, and I said, okay, let's do it. So I send Ram Keys up to book uh, the, the stadium, and uh, Sybil Duda goes to the radio stations up there. We then have posters made, and we stick the stuff up like you can't believe. Oh, there's going to be 20,000 people. You guys are going to make a fortune of money. And I said, oh, that's good. And we took up 72 musicians, hired wow. buses. Wow. I had to have a sound system. I had to put it all up. And uh, the guys went all ahead of me. And when it came to the accommodation, Ram Kesey said, oh, there's a dormitory here. We're going to put all the artists in the dormitory, and they all can stay there. We'll do the show, and they'll come back that night in the buses mm. from, from up north. So it all sounded very good. So I left here at about 4 o'clock in the, in the morning to get to uh, Tyndo, and I drive, and it's far. So I think about five and a half hours. You yeah. Petersburg, all up to the top there. And I arrive, and where's everybody? And I see the stadium. And instead of having pre-course fencing around, it's got wire fencing around. Okay. So when people go in, they stand outside. They want to go in because they can see through the fencing onto the stage. Mm. We lost an absolute fortune. We had more people standing outside <laughs> than inside. And then, of course, they're there. Hiring of the, the, the buses, yeah. the sound system, the artists. And I had another problem. From those musicians, they arrived and they saw where they were staying. And they said, ah, we're not staying here. They all moved into the Vendor Sun Hotel. So we had like so, 80 rooms. <laughs> and then when the bulls came in, I thought, oh, Mark, this is going to be huge. So it's one thing that it taught me, go and see the venue first. Don't sit in your office in Joburg. Mm. But that little joke, as I was an entrepreneur in those days, I said, I'm going to make a lot of money here. Mm. Let's do it. And I had another instance in a similar case okay. on the... The 10th of October every year used to be a public holiday in South Africa. It was like a religious holiday. Okay. And there was nothing on. 10th of October, the cinemas were closed. A lot of the shops were closed. It was a religious yeah, holiday. Yeah. And we decided to put on a show in Soweto. So off I go and I say, gee whiz, Soweto will just fly to the show. I went and did a deal with Telefunken for free televisions to go out. And uh, got the bands there, and we started. And I thought, boy, I've got to kill this time. Mm. Now it's tried for the second time. I've got to make some money here. Yeah, you learn from your f the, the yeah, first you time. You got, you got the lessons. So I get up, and we get the sound system. Everything's there before, and it's all covered. And I've got to put security there the night before. And we're all set for the case. I wake up at 5 o'clock, getting in my car, going to Soweto. And the heavens open up. Mm. And I look, and it's for some of these... Rain that doesn't stop. You know yeah, what I mean? It's yeah. the whole day. And I always say the rains in Johannesburg will come on the 10th of October. <laughs> and I watch that 10th of October every, every day every year, to yeah. see what, what happens. And I, I lost a lot of money. So that, there, there were two instances where here I thought as a young entrepreneur in my early 20s I was going to make some nice money. Mm. And I, it didn't work out that way. So you've got this history, this 40-year history of business insights, of lessons. And there really does seem to be a gap yeah. between what you can learn in an educational environment. We're sitting in an educational environment, which is quite interesting, and what happens out then in the real world. Let's talk about some of those instances yeah. and those nuances, please. I'll talk about a couple. The one I'd like to talk about, and I always say to my students, what is the problem here? You have a hypermarket in Steeldale. 
you have a hypermarket in Woodmead and you have a Steeldale, Woodmead or Norwood. Mm. And you say, guys, I need to deliver a stock. And the driver will come to you and he'll say to you, I only can do three deliveries a day. I said, three deliveries? I said, you've got a truck, you've got somebody to help you. How come you can only do three deliveries a day? Mm. Simple. You go and collect the stuff at the warehouse. You first take it to Steeldale, then you take it to Norwood, and then you take it to Woodmead. Simple, just drop. I said, it doesn't work that way. Mm. Because when you deliver to the hypermarkets, you can arrive there at 9 o'clock. However, by the time you leave there, it can be 1 o'clock mm. or what. Why? Because first of all, they're offloading the meat. Then it's the vegetables. Then it's the milk. Then it's the yogurts or whatever it is. Sure. So your truck will stand there for probably three hours before they load yours off. Because it's category of loading. it'll melt. If it's yeah. ice cream and stuff like that, they've got to get those things straight into the freezers and things like that. But you don't understand. So when you have a go at your staff for only being able to do three deliveries, you get into that van and go with them and see how long it takes mm. to deliver. And you don't understand. You don't hear that. Those are the things that you learn. Another thing that, that I always look at is returns. Mm. You know, everybody says, oh, you go into the stores and you see these huge returns. What happens if they don't sell? You get them back. And what do you do with them? Good question. No. What happens is if it's a hypermarket or if it's game, or it's a hyperama, and they buy huge quantities for the rest of the country, it comes back into the central warehouse. They said, we haven't sell, sold this in 90 days. We're returning it to you. Mm. So it comes back to you. And what do you do with the stock? But the stock comes in, and if, say, you want to put it back into stock, what do you do? There's pricing on the back with stickers, okay? Mm. And you try and get a hyperarmor sticker or a hypermarket sticker off there. Yeah. So you have two people sitting there every day with the most boring job removing stickers that you can put back into stock. And you don't learn about those things. But here, these guys are earning 12,000 Rand a month or whatever to remove a stupid sticker mm. that's sitting there. Mm. And those are the things that you don't understand when you're out there thinking it's so easy. What I appreciate about your comments are the fact that too many people go into business blind. And they really are looking at it from a very superficial level without really drilling down to the bottom of what they actually are delivering or what they actually are offering. I sat with Greg Solomon a few years ago. And he asked the question, what business are we actually in? This, of course, is something that's bandied about McDonald's on an ongoing basis. But they asked, what business are we actually in, in, in McDonald's? And a lot of people seem to have the misconception that McDonald's is a property business, because that's what a lot of people say. They own the land that they, that they have the franchises on. But he said, no, actually, we're a training business at our core. We don't sell hamburgers. We're a training business, and that's what makes us so effective. The better we can train our people to deliver fast burgers, the, the better we're going to do. And I thought that was a fascinating answer, but I think that's what I'm hearing mm. you say here. What business are you actually in? Mm. You may be in the music business, but actually you're in the delivery business perhaps. Do you I want don't realize when you go into business how many other things there are to sort out. It's, it's not just so easy. And I always used to say, oh, we'll just release it in six weeks. You cannot release it in six weeks. Mm. Don't get your product out in December. December is too busy. 
There's so many other things happening in December. Get your product out prior to December. Don't bring out stuff in December. Uh, who was I with? The, uh, I was with the CEO of All Life Group yesterday, and, and he was speaking about his startup process. And him and his business partner said, no, it's just an insurance company. We'll have it open in three months. And they said, okay, no, let's be a little bit yeah. cautious. Six months. And, in fact, it took them two years two, to, to do get it. Going. Yeah. So many people come to me afterwards and say, oh, I said, have, have you registered this? Have you been to Sandra? Have you been to Risa? Have you got barcode systems? On this? And they, they've done nothing like that. They haven't done it. Then you get the scientists to say, right, the accountants and everybody and the lawyers, let's put this to bed. I like that. I like the fact that, the, and the way that you put it as well, there are scientists in the business. And what do scientists deal with? They deal with fact. They deal with data. They deal with measurables. So they really are no. a scientific mm-hmm. core. Mm-hmm. I wonder how many of our listeners have scientific cores in their mm-hmm. business. So let's go back to the original question, which is what don't either books or lectures or academic institutions teach about business? What are a couple of other stories or lessons that you learned in your career? Maybe I can ask, what's the biggest mistake you've made in your career? What was the lesson that you learned from that? I think the biggest mistake I did was not taking the chance and going on my own. At the time, I had a wonderful knowledge of hit records. Mm. And I could go out there and pick hit records and, and, and yeah, you seem to be the, the and yet I always worked for the boss. Mm. But I made a lot of money for the boss as such. So, <laughs> and are we talking about now that your gallo my gallo, gallo days? Mm. I think at the time I had a couple of huge fights with the boss because I said, "Oh, this is great. Let's put this out." The boss would say, "No, that's not for me." And mm. I'd say, "Let's put this out." And I often proved it right that mm. eventually, after the fighting and discussion. Uh, I, uh, you know, it was always money. How much is it going to cost? Because a lot of the, the international deals is done with advances, mm. and the local deals you've always got to help people. There's combi situations, there's equipment situations. You've got to advance the finances to them. And um, I learned very early in my career. I went to Swaziland and I saw a band playing, mm. and I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. And I came back to Joburg and I spoke to the whole team and I said, you know, I found this band in Swaziland and I've got to record them. I said, they're coming up to Joburg. I'll put them in the studio. You all can come and have a listen. So the band came, they arrived, they played. Everybody said, Ivor, where did you find these guys? I said, I found them playing in Swaziland. And uh, the next thing is the leader of the band says, Ivor, I'm in trouble here. I need to go to Lusaka because we've got a gig in Lusaka, we're going to play at a hotel there, and our air tickets haven't come. Mm. He says, I will come back and sign the contract with you, or I'll sign the contract now, if you can help me with the air tickets. So I went to Peter Gala at the time, I said, Peter, we need so much money, I need one-way tickets to Lusaka, and he said to me, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the money for these guys, I understand them, I've heard them, I think they're great, but... If you don't get that money back from them, it comes off your salary. And that's like, I never saw those guys again. Oh, really? And that was a huge learning curve for me to be very, very careful when you're advancing money that you're going to get it back. Mm. And uh, those are the things that, that do happen. Yeah, absolutely. That, that uh, you've got to be very, very careful of. Well, Ivo, it's been a fascinating conversation. You clearly have a great deal of experience, and we look forward to engaging you further. One of the ways to do that is on this Thursday, I believe. You're giving a lecture. What is that all about? Just give us a little bit of background, please. We're going to talk about the risks you take, Mm. taking chances. We're going to talk about marketing. Mm. We're going to talk a bit about legal. We're going to talk about international. 
We're going to talk about monies coming to South Africa. Mm. We're going to talk technical. Or all in the music industry. It might affect other industries as well. Okay. We're also going to talk about streaming mm. and where's the industry going to be in two years' time. Mm. And those are my discussions that we're going to talk about. Okay, so it's so, what you don't learn about business from books and the internet. The internet. Okay. And these are stories I tell because you don't see these stories around from going to Tahando or going to Soweto and doing shows there and, and things like that. And you don't hear about a guy taking stickers off uh, CDs or any products coming back from the majors. You don't hear about that. Mm. You don't read about that, but it all costs you money. Absolutely. You know, and uh, you don't realize that at the end of the day when you're doing your accountancy, I've got to pay provident funds. I've got to pay uh, pension schemes here. I've got you know all sorts of things, and it all costs money today. So you're as good as your lost uh, record. Your lost hit. So here you go, and uh, you know very well, hundred and thirty thousand, whatever. It's fantastic, mm. but you never know what your next one's going to be. Is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? Another key lesson, and yeah. I think that the, the conversation on Thursday is then going to be jam-packed full of these lessons, full of these Probably. stories. I'm going to go through a whole lot of interesting facts, Fantastic stories I'm going to do about how I enjoy the music business and what I hated about the music business. So we're going to talk about all those things and a lot on technology I think we're going to talk about. Well, Ivor Harberger, former CEO of Warner Gallo Music Group and also ex-chairman of the record industry of South Africa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Appreciate we appreciated asking these questions and your insights have been remarkable. We look forward to Thursday. Thanks. Looking forward to seeing you guys. Do you have a question for our Henley Business Radio Ask an Expert feature? Submit it via our website in the comments boxes on campus or use the hashtag AskAnExpert on your favorite social media platform.